Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Glad to welcome in Celine and Stephen Mather. We got a father and daughter team. They host the What Should I Think About podcast. I think I've been on your show before. Now I've finally been able to return the favor and have you both on Mindship Podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you because, of course, well, so we're going to get into this story, but the the rough version of it is as we just before we hit record, we said, okay. We're talking about all things Jehovah's Witnesses because you, Stephen, were a Jehovah's Witness yourself. Sounds like Celine was never into it, but there's an interesting story there as far as how you got out. So maybe we should start there. Well, here's the question. Maybe before we start with that, can you give us a thumbnail overview of the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Where does the movement come from? How did it start? Yeah, so um, I suppose back in the sort of 1800s, there was a bit of a movement that was looking for the return of of Jesus and the the setting up of his kingdom. Some of your listeners will probably have heard of the Millerites, um, mm. this this movement that would do all these time prophecy calculations, looking at the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and everything. So they had a sort of philosophy that if you if you were able to look at the Bible in a certain way, you know, and uh, a lot of maths were involved, you know, so count how many years since this destruction of Jerusalem, you know, carry the one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you've, wow, you've got the dates. And, and they also had some other sort of slightly even more um, strange beliefs around the pyramid of Egypt and all this sort of thing that you could calculate the time prophecies related to the measurements of the great pyramid at Giza. Um, and, and there was this, this very kind of this movement around trying to work out when, when the end would come and really Jehovah's witnesses. Well, actually it was uh, Charles Taze Russell who he kind of during that milieu, if you like, he was part of that, th- these people that were thinking about this stuff and, um, he set up a magazine with a, a colleague called N- Nelson H. Barber, I think. And they did a magazine about, um, you know, the Herald of Christ's presence and all of this sort of stuff. From that came this movement called the Bible Students. And that's really where Jehovah's Witnesses come from. Looking at the history, there's actually, as always, there's quite a lot of factionalism in the early days. Mm-hmm. So it's not a simple line from, from Russell to Jehovah's Witnesses, but but if you look back from Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got Charles Taze Russell sets up this group called Bible Students. They're based around this kind of end time prophecy stuff, fundamentalist Christianity in many respects as well. So, you know, trying to recreate the first century Christianity, you know, in the in the 20th century. And that's really what um, what what it was all about. And then comes um, after Charles Taze Russell dies, comes a guy called Rutherford, who... I think in many respects is the, is more of the architect of what modern day Jehovah's Witnesses are like. He organized it all very much in terms of, you know, proselytizing, trying to preach to the world, uh, the magazines, um, congregations, and, and they grew a lot during his time 
Um, I think to all intents and purposes, he was a bit of a bully and um, not a particularly pleasant person, but he kind of, and he was the one that coined the name Jehovah's Witnesses, or at least during his time. So that, that's that's kind of how Jehovah's Witnesses came to be, I guess. I mean, there's more to it, obviously, but yeah, I guess yeah. that's a potted history. Yeah, it's funny because my involvement with Jehovah's Witnesses was when I was an evangelical Christian, and we viewed you guys as a cult in the mm. sense that it was not Christian. It was not Orthodox. That was the yeah. angle, because I remember listening mm. to a guy who was called Dr. Walter Martin, the Bible Answer Man. He's dead now, but he had a show called The Bible Answer Man on the radio. And it was really interesting because the sort of cult psychology that he would attack with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I used to get into these arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses on my doorstep, <laughs> all the time when I was living in the States. And that was the, around the issue of their doctrine, you know, and that was the big thing. And then he talked about the history of the movement only in the sense that he said Charles Taze Russell was a sort of a charlatan and a fraud. He was sued for, you know, the miracle wheat scandal and some other things. He was proved to be a perjurer in court and all the rest of it. And that's how we would debate Jehovah's Witnesses. Did you ever come across an evangelical like me who <laughs> kind of studied oh, the yeah. movement and knew, knew a little bit about that history of it? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, obviously I, I was one of those people that would knock on the doors um, and um, I was on the other side of that conversation. Yeah, um, I think there's certainly some that would raise those things. I mean, I don't think there's much argument that uh, Russell was a had a slightly dodgy past, let's say. Um, and um, I suppose Jehovah's Witnesses would deny that, but they don't care too much, if I'm honest. Um, I think that the thing is, is, it's no surprise that, um, uh, that the sort of mainstream Christianity doesn't like Jehovah's Witnesses because Jehovah's Witnesses are very anti-religion. They had a, mm. they had a big, their, their big thing was that religion, how did, how did he put it, Russell? Uh, religion is a, a racket i forget his exact terms but he was he was basically saying that the religion was a con and a racket it was just a way to make money and it was all false and, and jehovah's witnesses have carried that very antagonistic view forward that everybody else every other religion including you know um evangelicalism and catholicism but islam and every other religion is part of the world empire of false religion the harlot that is signified in uh, in the bible i think revelation talks about this great harlot and so jehovah's witnesses call religion this harlot they you know so for a start off they're not winning any friends are they <laughs> by this uh, by this stance um they also have some unorthodox beliefs um around so they don't believe in the trinity they're a unitarian group so they they believe that jehovah is the name of the god mm -hmm. in the hebrew scriptures and his firstborn creation his first creation was the being that would become jesus and jesus came to earth to die in in the normal way i suppose the normal way that most christians would understand the ransom sacrifice but it wasn't god it was jesus coming down it was his firstborn son so that's an area of contention as well between jehovah's witnesses and others and for that reason many uh, orthodox christians would deny that jehovah's witnesses are christians because of that mm -hmm. um you know I, i'm i'm way past caring all of that debate <laughs> though, but uh, but that is one of the areas of, of antagonism
It really is. I can remember arguing uh, John 1, 1 in the Greek, yeah. you know, with many a Jehovah's Witness, in the beginning was the word. The word was a God, according to the New World Translation. Now, just as I've taught um, many, uh, for many happy hours about the definite article and um, the mm -hmm. uh, the translation of, of the word and uh, and yeah. so on. So, yeah, I, I've i been there. And, um, yeah, it, it yeah. all seems so silly now, to be honest. Oh, man. We argued over <laughs> one letter, basically the letter A. Yes. The Granville Sharps rule of Greek grammar and all. I can, I can go round and round and round with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. I can remember many times standing on the doorstep, you know, wherever I was living, having that same argument. And like you said, you were on the receiving end of that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. let me just it's... apologize to every. <laughs> well, I will apologize too. to Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> but what was your experience, Celine? You you weren't raised in it though, were you? So how how did you come to know about the movement? As a the daughter of of Stephen, who's in the movement or was in the movement, I should say. Yeah, I think it's not something that we massively spent a lot of time talking about that history and background of it. Do you mm. know what I mean? Because it was like the way that I knew about it was through like I would call it like osmosis in the sense of like my like, you know, all all family pretty much other than my parents are in or were in growing up in the JWs. So, you know, they wouldn't be there for Christmas. You would ask as a child, why not? They wouldn't do birthdays. Mm. Certain things would be met with deafening silence if mentioned. Like, you know, if I was like, oh, I got these earrings, they're birthstones. And I was like, you know, I'd go home and be like, why Why was everyone weird when I said birthstones? It's like, oh, because that's pagan, you know? Um, <laughs> okay. And they, they don't like that. So it's kind of like, or like, you know, you'd see in your relatives wallet it says no blood and you'd be like why do they do that so it'd just be like things that you things that aren't like objects in in every person's house would be objects in my relative's house that then would be questioned because it's not normal <laughs> like mm. a big no blood sign in your wallet or um pamphlets about you know with pictures of children hugging lions and stuff is not like you know completely usual um so you would question it i did have it's not like it wasn't allowed for me to engage with it either so it's like i did have like a my bible stories book um as a child which is like the jehovah's witness kind of like children's bible stories they're quite horrific um mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all like you know people being you know turned to turn to um salt pillars and you know the only nice picture it turns out they were of Jezebel so it wasn't meant to be nice actually um mm. but you know it's all the these things so it was like it's being seen through the eyes of a child that see so it's it's just I had more of it in my childhood to witness so I would question it and see it more but it wasn't like I wasn't in one of dad's favorite words I wasn't inculcated mm. <laughs> like it was it was from like um it's like it was more than an outsider's point of view because I was I had more information but I wasn't in it so it was like an interesting mm -hmm. situation. Observation. Yeah, you had a really mm -hmm. interesting viewpoint. But Stephen, yeah. you were raised in, is that correct? Were you raised, which is such a fascinating thing, because obviously this is a North American movement, isn't it? But then obviously spreads worldwide. So here in the UK, you become a Jehovah's Witness, what, as a young child? Or were you just sort of inculcated in, in as you say, Celine? Yeah, um, yeah, I was um, I was born into it. I was I'm third generation, so my grandparents mm. were witnesses. So my parents' parents came in during the sort of 40s, 50s, and then they raised obviously my parents in the in the the truth as as they called it. Mm. My uh, maternal grandfather never did actually become a baptized witness, although he was 
you know, still very kind of supportive of it all. Um, so yeah, I, I was steeped in it. You know, that was that was my life, and and my all my immediate family and most of my uh, extended family were all Jehovah's Witnesses. Of course, all my friends. Um, I did go to school. Jehovah's Witnesses don't all homeschool. There's increasingly more that do, but. Um, in my day, it was normal to go to school. So you did get a bit of um, association outside, but um, you weren't supposed to have much to do with people of the world, you know. So when you came home from school, JW friends, and then you'd grow up with these people. And so, yeah, very much. Um, uh, yeah, the, the word, word inculcated, of course, is is a Bible or it's a translation from a, uh, a word that uh, appears in the Bible. And it's supposed to be a good thing, you know, to inculcate your children in um in, in obviously the Lord. Sounds, <laughs> sounds terrifying yeah, yeah it does it's close to indoctrination doesn't it kind mm. of yeah inculcate indoctrinate it's a similar kind mm. of thing how big is the is the cool. witness community in the uk because i haven't met that many witnesses uh, i remember one time it's probably about going back about five or six years ago now i was working on a job in north wales with a couple of guys but it was a builder and uh, I was working as a joiner carpenter alongside this crew. And it turns out that the, the owner of this company and his sort of sidekick guy were both Jehovah's Witnesses here in North Wales. And I've, I found that fascinating because at a certain point, it was on a Friday, they suddenly put down all their tools. They started throwing everything in the van and said, we got to go. We got to go. So what's the rush? Where are you going? I said, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. We have to go to a, a kingdom hall meeting tonight. The owner of the company was actually involved in the leadership. So he was supposed to be running one of the sessions. So he had to scream up to North Wales and go to this meeting. You know, so I was kind of surprised by the fact that I actually met some, some Jehovah's Witnesses. Now they didn't try the to pros- proselytize me the whole two days or three days that we worked together, which I thought, I thought they'd be much more active in trying to convince me to become a, a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, the answer to your first question, um, sort of what the size, uh, there's around sort of 130,000 JWs. So, so they say, you know, these figures are generally taken from the, the organization's own uh, reports. So, yeah, there's, um, you know, most it's like a cities, lot to me, but that's just because yeah. it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot it to you, yeah. yeah. Most, most cities will have multiple congregations. Most towns will have at least one congregation of around 100 people. Um, so that's, yeah, there's, there's, you'll find a JW, um, somewhere around that your locality. Um, I think, um, that they're encouraged to do preaching to do witnessing as it's called all the time but i think the reality is is people are not as um not everybody is as quick to get the bible out and so on and when you're at work i think uh, most jehovah's witnesses probably concentrate on doing their day job most of the time which is thankful mm. and actually you'll find a lot of builders uh, sorry a lot of jehovah's witnesses are builders a lot of the manual trades and so on um jehovah's witnesses get involved in that because it's seen as a practical thing and you can, you know, you, there, there's a future in it because of course, Jehovah's Witnesses think that the earth, the earth is going to be destroyed. The world of mankind is going to be dest- destroyed, making way for a new system where only God's people are going to survive. And there's going to be a big building work to do. Mm. Plus of course, there's a lots of kingdom halls, lots of assembly halls, lots of facilities that are, being built or have been built over the last um, few decades. So, yeah, a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses get involved in building actually by being a witness because they get involved in 
in helping building kingdom halls i was on the plumbing team for instance so i learned how oh, to really? do plumbing and so you learn a bit of a trade so then some of them carried on and did started their own businesses up so that's yeah that's not surprising well there's this baked in apocalypticism like you say because going mm. back to the history it strikes me that the thing about millerites like you say they they were steeped in this end times prophecy that becomes a hallmark of the jehovah's witnesses too i mean how many failed end times armageddon prophecies that was another big sticking point i can remember having those conversations with probably a guy like you on my doorstep and i would always bring up all those failed prophecies and said now if they're claiming to speak for jehovah how can they get it wrong so many times and just keep revising and revising but that is absolutely baked into the sort of theology of the jehovah's witnesses isn't it it is. Um, and it's based into the psychology, I think, as well, um, yeah. of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's um, it's fascinating. It's a really interesting subject. I mean, we've, we've discussed it on our podcast quite a bit, you know, how that works. Um, and there seems to be a benefit for organizations to have this constant sense of, you know, around the corner, it's about to happen. So it mm. creates a sense of urgency that people need to do something. You know, they've got, we've got to do it quick, quick, quick. And then there's these periods, obviously, of uh, disappointment. You know, of course, there was the great disappointment that, that the Millerites experienced. But the, then you're right, Jehovah's Witnesses have had that kind of constantly. But what tends to happen is there's a, a bait and switch thing that goes on, which says something like, well, yes, we didn't quite get it right, but something happened. Ah. Um, maybe it was invisible. So that's one of the tricks that Jehovah's Witnesses have pulled a few times. You know, so, okay, the end of the world didn't come in 1914. But the end of the Gentile times happened. And so Jesus came to his heavenly throne. And so actually it did happen. It's just that we didn't see it um, ah. conveniently. <laughs> Always guess. an explanation. I've, I've <laughs> gone through that, the book, When Prophecy Fails by Leon Festinger. I'm sure you're both familiar with it. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it strikes me. Yeah. I think he might mention the Millerites and maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses in the beginning couple of chapters talking about how fascinating it is when a group or organization fails to have a prophecy come true, the followers tend to double down a lot of times. Instead of quitting and disgust and saying, oh, you said that Jehovah told you specifically this was going to happen on a specific date and it didn't happen, therefore you must be a false prophet and your movement must be false. They'll double down and they'll, like I said, they'll come up with a very creative explanation and yeah. end up sticking with the movement all the more. Some will. So what we we actually covered that book in in one of our early podcasts, um, mm. and uh, it's quite an old piece of work now. And the, the 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 study is is quite old, and it follows some fairly dated methodology. And I think what we found with that that research was that actually, if you look at the, I'm so sad. I actually made a table um, mm -hmm. to show all the different people <laughs> right. that were involved in this uh, this group, this UFO cult, and how they ended up. And actually. It wasn't, I think the story isn't quite that, you know, they all, they all doubled down and they all actually mm. quite a lot of people left. Um, a lot of people sort of drifted, but there was a hardcore. So for me, what I, what I think that suggests is that you get a really, if you're an apocalyptic religion, then you get a good boost through that for many years. And that brings a lot of people in. And then when you have this failed prophecy, sure, you lose quite a lot. But you get a net benefit. 
So I think that's what, for me, that's what we see in these groups. So, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses had a bit of a thing in 1975 where they were, not lots of them were, again, somehow somebody had calculated that man had been created 6,000 years ago, which marks the end of the the, the final day of creation or the end. Uh, therefore, it would be convenient. It would be fitting if this was the end so a lot of people were waiting for 1975 and actually quite a lot of people did leave after Mm. that but not everybody so it kind of then starts again so you get this huge this steep increase and again keep ramping up the pressure more and more urgent more and more urgent and then there's this this process where you lose a lot again and it just starts all over again that's for me that's what i i see Mm -hmm. not that the majority stayed and doubled down what was your take on that, Celine? I mean, if you grew up sort of next to a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, did you hear a lot about the end times apocalypticism within the movement? Well, that's the weird thing is that they're not they're not really, and they're living their lives in a way that doesn't suggest that the end is nigh. Like they're living that you know you're living in a way very similar to how we live, except with a lot more rules. I don't remember a time where like it was you know told me told me like oh yeah all of the, all of your extended family think the end's coming i don't i think that's some, one of those things that you just sort of know somehow book is mentioned but mm-hmm. you never felt the urgency or like you know some people that have like um, emergency bags and stuff though i remember that being discussed at one point not recently though surprisingly but they were talking about getting like emergency rucksacks with like tins and first aid kits and things like that um for when the end comes or when they're getting persecuted or something because that will happen before the end um you know they're just going to work living their lives having dinner like it doesn't feel like the end is imminent mm. and like we said you know i think mum said once to her relative she's like do you look at us and just think oh yeah these people these people that are our family they're gonna like burn at armageddon no so not thinking about it so it's so dissonant mm-hmm. you know thought process so it's a, it's a weird one it is a weird one i mean it's similar to evangelicalism i think because there's a lot of end times preppers and all that out there not every evangelical is like that though certainly in north Mm. america where i come from but yeah there's that strain of eschatology end times prophecy the end is near jesus is coming back it could be any time like a thief in the night Mm. i grew up with Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing i grew up in a Mm. fundamentalist sort of bible church and i heard a a similar message i think to maybe what you heard stephen uh growing Mm. up as a jehovah's witness it's interesting isn't it how you whatever movement you're raised in, we just believed it. It was all the truth. We had no critical faculties to question it. So how did you get out in the end? What was the sort of final straw that got you out? Yeah, I think I was, I was listening to um, your, your podcast today, actually with, uh, Mm. with Yanya Lalich. Um, Oh yes. She's been on on our podcast too. She's great a great guest and a really interesting person. And she made the point there and I totally agree with this is that I think most people have doubts. So whilst on the outside, it looks like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all, you know, headbangers really, you know, they really believe it all. And, and that's proof because they come and knock on your door. Actually, I think they go through periods of, of doubt about it all. And and there's, a, as Celine says, there is this cognitive dissonance. There is this uh, trying to hold two opposing views constantly. On the one hand, yes, the end is coming uh, I believe that, and I'm going to preach that, and I'm going to but, make yeah. decisions about it. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you know, they'll be taking, and I don't see an issue with this, but they'll be taking out a mortgage for the next exactly. 50 years. Do you know what I mean? Right. So it's like, why are you? Why are you doing that? The end is the that. point. Yeah, just rent, <laughs> yeah. which I'm like, you know, real me is, you know, thinking, like, yeah. yeah, 
great make choices for your future because the future is happening and the end isn't but like mm-hmm. you know you do think why are you making those choices it doesn't yeah, so that's not consistent it, with your theology it's mm. not and but you know humans do that all the time that again sure. this is part of our psychology you know we do we do things like this you know we we agonize over certain things and then don't even worry about something else you know that's that's kind of the way that we are so i think it just plays upon that um why what started to happen with me was that the doubts that I'd had started to just become too great. And as Celine alluded to before we now kind of pre-chat, that she in many respects was the catalyst for my leaving because I'd I'd come to a kind of the way that I managed my cognitive dissonance was to say, well, you know, it may or may not be true, um, but actually it's quite a good way to live. And it's my community. It's everybody I know. And you know what? I'm just going to kind of poddle along and so mm. on. But then obviously when you've got a baby, when you, when you see your daughter for the first time and you, you, well, I certainly projected forward into the future thinking I'm going to have to tell this kid uh, what I believe to be the truth, you know, and I, I am I going to really be teaching her this stuff that I, I really don't believe myself. And that's the moment that I thought I've really got to do something about my doubts. So my first motive was actually to try and get rid of my doubts. So I wasn't hoping to leave. I was hoping to stay. Right. So if someone me, could answer was, all your questions, you'd be, you'd be fine. It'd be <laughs> yeah. great. You Talk know? you off the cliff. Uh, exactly. I wanted <laughs> yeah. that. I wanted to believe it. I mean, I've oh, said I've this before. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, prayed to Jehovah many times to, to begging him to make me believe it, you know, please mm. make me believe it. I really want to believe it. Even on the day when I was getting baptized um, at 16, Jehovah's Witnesses don't do babies baptism, but they, they do young people's baptism. Um, but I was at 16, I was just desperate to, to believe it, you know, cause I knew I needed to, but um, so yeah, at that point, I just, because of Celine being born, I thought, well, I, I need to deal with this. Hopefully I can, take a bit of time out. I'm going to allow myself to do something I never, you're not supposed to do, which is read other literature, you know, Ooh. so you're told to make the truth your own. You're told to study. You're told to, you know, check that these things are so, but only by cross-referencing other Jehovah's Witnesses literature. You're exactly. not supposed to go anywhere else, you know. So for the first time in my life, I said, look, I'm going to read anything I want to. I'm going to look at anything I want to, and I'm going to allow myself to look at this square in the eyes and see whether I really do believe it or not. And I reckon it took me a couple of weeks. That all. That was a short trip. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I dragged it out because it was also part of my leaving strategy, which was to, to tell everybody, you know, well, I'm not quite, you know, I'm still studying. I'm still thinking. I'm still working it out, you know, and gradually I was fading. So it was part of my strategy to try and avoid uh, getting disfellowshipped, which is a, uh, the process of shunning that happens. If you're found guilty of apostasy, which is, you know, kind of loosely defined as anything turning away from the mm-hmm. truth and sort of talking to others about what you now believe, then you get shunned. So I would have ended up losing contact with all my family and uh, friends. So, so you I, weren't disfellowshipped in the end? No, I wasn't. I mean, what happens is you get what we call soft shunned. So mm. most of my relatives and stuff don't really have anything to do with me. That's possibly part of my fault as well, because I don't particularly want to get involved in these conversations. Um, part of my fear was, you know, the more you get asked questions, 
So why don't you come anymore, Steve? What's the matter? You know, is there something wrong? Mm. And then, of course, you feel obliged to answer the questions. But then by answering the questions, you put yourself in a very dangerous position because you're then seen as an apostate, you know, preaching against the good, against the truth. So um, I, I, my strategy was to basically just disappear slowly. Uh, we've managed to maintain a relationship with my parents, which is very important to me. And so that that's something that, you know, Celine was able to have her relationship with yeah, her grandma. that was something that was I think could be easily forgotten when even for like yeah thinking about for my sake as in like for me to have a relationship with um grandparents you know if dad went out all guns blazing that kind of just dictates what relationships I get to have as well so he kind mm-hmm. of like made a choice that meant which I'm grateful for that meant I got to have a relationship with my grandparents it's a shame that he had to do some political maneuvering you know, it's like Game of Thrones, um, right. sort of like, you know, maneuvering in order to like, making, you know, making a plan like I'll slowly fade and I'll do it this way. But, you know, I'm grateful for that because, yeah, it's a relationship I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. But they're not actively proselytizing you, you said. Is that true? Or Celine, do you do you feel like yeah. there's, they're really well, trying to win you into the fold? No, they they tried a few things, I think, as a child. and But then dad put a stop to that because I was a child and I was his child so you know it's it's his choice how I'm raised and he said no no to that which I'm grateful for because yeah children are easily sort of you know influenced so um didn't need them giving me sort of biblical um Mm -hmm. tellings and things like that I think I remember as a child thinking I'd go to this sometimes and if I was being babysat and I'd think well this seems nice because obviously they all come over to you and it's like they even love bomb children (laughs) oh no <laughs> um, yeah everyone comes Classic. over and is very excited and they're telling you how lovely you sing your hymns and um you know oh it's so lovely to see you and you're getting hugs from everybody and they're like oh do you still remember me da, 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 from when you were so little oh, and boy. all of this even as a child they have no shame <laughs> yeah i know i remember talking um, to a woman who was raised in poland she now lives in dublin but she was uh, sort of indoctrinated into the Jehovah's Witnesses as a young girl for that very same reason. She had a fairly dysfunctional home life and someone invited her along to a kingdom hall meeting. And there she was absolutely love bombed as a 10, 11, 12 year old girl and fell for it. Mm-hmm. You know, she was like, Oh my gosh, this is, of course this is do. community. Yeah. This is love. And, and in some levels it was, it was a community. It's like a church, isn't it? There's a built-in community. They will welcome mm-hmm. you in. And she fell for it on that line mm-hmm. that she was welcomed in and loved yeah. for the first time in her life. And mm-hmm. that's how she got sucked into it. Yeah. Yeah. You've, and also there was family there as well. So I was like, oh, this this seems nice. But obviously, as you grow, you realize the insidious sort of nature underneath it. But yeah, I think they don't really try and get me that one time because I, you know, I'm an adult and go around and visit people on my own. Now we don't all go as a family unit everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So I visited and I was you know, offered a magazine, you know, the, the magazines they bring around. I was just mm. like, Watchtower, no, Awake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, they're like, oh, it's what about um, mental health? It'll be good. Um, you know, if you ever feel stressed or anxious, and I was like, oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, no, no, that's fine. Um, but the other person that was there was, felt really uncomfortable and actually left the room, even though they're also a JW. So it's mm. interesting the way people yeah, the respond. Dynamic. Yeah. Cause I think, some people will always try and some people know when um, I guess it's no no point <laughs> and mm. then they just find it uncomfy but yeah it's not something that regularly happens I think 
after right. that now that's kind of being left alone we'll see mm. maybe it'll be like a once a year thing maybe that's what they're resigned to do I don't <laughs> I'm know saving up for you back in just a few minutes with the second half of this conversation with Stephen and Celine, who of course are the co-hosts of the What Should I Think About podcast. We are going to be getting into the issue of the question whether or not the Jehovah's Witnesses are indeed a destructive cult, as well as looking at does it fit some of the more well-known cult models such as Hassan's Bite model or Yanya Lalich's Bounded Choice model. How does it fit those sort of cult models? We're also going to conclude by talking about reconstructing life after leaving a cult or a controlling religion behind. And in fact, on that note, speaking of destructive cults, I've been going through Amanda Montel's book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, and it's a really interesting study on how cults and other groups use language, certainly things like loaded language, thought-terminating cliches, to normalize, to control, to condition their followers. And she reminds us that it is true that cults exist on a continuum. She's not certainly the only one who's mentioned this by far, but there are, well, I guess you could say more ethical cults and then less ethical cults. So where do the Jehovah's Witnesses fall on this spectrum? And it's interesting too, because it overlaps with the last book that I just finished, which is Jen Senko's incredible work, The Brainwashing of My Dad. And that's all about how right-wing or far-right media has changed, certainly changed her father, literally changed his personality. And the good thing about that is I've been in touch with Jen and we are booking in a recording next week as I'm doing this recording now. And so I'll be talking to Jen real shortly here. And also we've also confirmed that she's going to be coming back in the month of June, round about the third Sunday of the month. She's going to be our guest on our final MindShift Zoom call before we take our break for the summer. And in fact, we've got, speaking of MindShift Zoom calls, we've got Stephen and Celine coming in at the end of May here, probably again about the third weekend of May on the Sunday. They're going to be our guests on our next MindShift Zoom call. We just had Dr. David DeAndre come in last month and end of April had a really good call. There wasn't a lot of people on that call because people were super busy, but that's going to be put up on the Mindship Podcast public Facebook page. So if you want to have a look at what we talked about with returning guest Dr. David DeAndre, have a look at the Facebook page. And so how can you gain access to those calls? Well, you can be a supporter of Mindship Podcast on Patreon. You get early access to episodes on the Wednesdays before they drop on the Fridays everywhere else, as well as becoming part of our closed Facebook group, and it's in there that we send out notifications of not only our patrons-only calls that we have on about the first or second Sunday of the month, but then those MindShift Zoom calls. So helping me out also gives you a good reward of getting into those MindShift Zoom calls that we have every single month. And as I say, I'm super excited to be talking not only to Jen Senko for this upcoming podcast, but also having her come in as our guest in the month of June on that last MindShift Zoom call. And so look for that episode coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Also, I'm going to be on the Cult Vault podcast. I've got that recording booked, and I think I might return the favor and have Casey come on Mindship podcast. We might do a collaborative episode. And I just finished last weekend, as I'm doing this recording now, just a couple days ago, my presentation on Christian involvement in politics and religious trauma 
for the court 2022 the conference on religious trauma which has just concluded a few days ago as i'm doing this recording now and that is still available along with all the other episodes you can go on the court 2022 website and you can find all the episodes which were recorded so you can still have access to those uh, sessions so if you want to catch my episode on christian involvement in politics and how that relates to religious trauma you can still gain access to those and then we've got the next thing coming up in july my good friend dr terry daniel she is hosting the conference on death grief and belief that's coming up it's actually an in-person conference in portland oregon however you can attend that uh, virtually as well online if you live in a different part of the world or you can't make it to portland i'm going to be doing my uh, presentation on what happens after people leave the church i'm going to be doing it virtually from here in the UK. Unfortunately, I can't make it to Portland as much as I'd love to go back to my old hometown. I'm not able to make it, but thanks to Zoom and everything else, we'll be able to do that virtually. So you can find out more information on the conference on death, grief, and belief. Look that up, do a Google search on that, or you can send me a message on Twitter. You can follow me at MindShift2018, send me a DM, and I do tweet about that regularly, and I'll be posting more stuff on that as the conference comes up in July in Portland. So let's get on back into this conversation with Stephen and Celine as we look into whether or not the Jehovah's Witnesses are indeed a destructive cult. Where on that spectrum do they fall on that continuum? Picking up the threads of who we are, life after the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Now, this is the real question. Like, is Jehovah's Witnesses, is it a destructive cult? Because I recently went through Rick Allen Ross's book. I'm sure you've read this, Cult Inside Out. And he talks about what makes a cult a destructive cult. And you think about the classic, the Manson family and Om Shinrikyo mm-hmm. and you know Jim Jones, Heaven's Gate, people who committed suicide or committed murder. That's a, clearly a destructive cult. But he makes mm-hmm. the case that any cult is destructive in, in the sense that it actually actively harms its followers. So you could say, yes, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a destructive cult mm-hmm. in the sense that, A, they have that two-witness rule, which has led to a, yeah. countless numbers of children being abused mm-hmm. sexually and in other ways, and the, the offenders getting away with it. And then two, the blood transfusion rule, which has mm-hmm. led to how many countless thousands of people dying needlessly from just needing a simple blood transfusion that would have saved their lives and yet they're not allowed to. So there's two examples right there I could think of that would, that would I would think, fall into a category of a destructive cult. Would you agree with that or offer a different perspective? 100%, because yeah. they're one of the main reasons I'm so... But there's so many reasons I'm so thankful that mum and dad chose not to raise me in that environment. Is because, mm. I mean, I have ulcerative colitis, which means, you know, sometimes I lose blood and I've not at this point needed a transfusion. But if I needed one, I could have one and I wouldn't feel been, any yeah. guilt. Yeah, and I wouldn't have to feel guilt. So that's one reason, you know, it makes it, it brings it home. Um, you wouldn't be allowed to have one. I mean, is the, from what I understand, well, some of the more hardcore aspects of it, they'll mm-hmm. actually send a team to the hospital um, to try and talk the mm-hmm. doctors and the staff out of giving a blood transfusion to a patient, yeah. as well as the patient and yeah. their family. So it's a very strong arm mm-hmm. sort of tactic. This isn't is the it? thing. And like, if you accept it, then you might be looking at being, you know, disfellowshipped and things like that. Right for accepting it so you know even if it's not the pressure of someone literally coming in and trying to argue it just knowing that if you do take it and anyone finds out you'll be in trouble so that i mean that psychologically is damaging 
and destructive. And also the other thing that we often talk about on our podcast here is the issue, the many issues that women face. So yeah, you know, they are told to be subservient and mm-hmm. submissive. They're not allowed to have leadership roles. They are encouraged to be quiet. There's that talk that's often, it's often sort of shared where a guy's saying like, women aren't smarter than men, but in the instances where they are, they should pretend not to be and know better and be quiet. And it's all this like, all of this where it's like, yeah, get get married, be quiet, subservient wife, I suppose, and and do that role. And yeah, all of the abuses that happen, it's just like not being allowed to take blood or have an, an organ transplant or something. These things are just obvious ones. And then there's more that I'm sure dad sure. can talk to, especially like growing up in it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's another one that we haven't mentioned in, in that frame is, is shunning, of course, which is a yeah. incredibly mm-hmm. destructive practice, which drives people into poverty at times. You know, young people, they lots end up losing their support mm. network. And so, yeah, there's lots of destructive factors. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not as bad as Jim Jones, but it's it's worse than... Well, I don't know. Um, your local yeah. church, I suppose. On you know, spectrum, yeah. Exactly, it is a spectrum, and so yeah, I think it is a destructive cult. It, it fits the, uh, it fits enough of the criteria, um, in my view, for us to describe it in that way, in the way that, you know, we kind of understand cults. It's like a lot of language is, is slippery and it changes, and people want to, you know, uh, control the narrative. But um, is it destructive? Yes, um, it has some very clear destructive policies. Uh, you've mentioned blood transfusions, shunning, the two witness the, rule, two witness rule, which which leads to a, a situation where children are are sometimes abused and and they're not protected, um, and then you also have things like the way that that people are lied to about the future, which changes their decision making. So although we've said, you know, on day to day. Jehovah's Witnesses are not necessarily talking about Armageddon all the time. When it comes to big decisions, like should I go to university? Should I develop a career? Um, you know, which career should I develop? That very much is is controlled by the the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses. So one of my big frustrations was that you know, I, I didn't go to university. I I have had to catch up with that in my forties and fifties. So. I feel like I, I missed out on that. It means that people don't live a life that they they want to, and freedom and decisions that they want to make. And then you have the the sexual. So although they they tolerate it at times all sorts of pretty horrific behaviour, there's a very strong sort of prudish element to Jehovah's Witnesses. So no sex before marriage, mm-hmm. which means that people um, end up often getting married too early or to the wrong people. And they also are very anti-LGBTQ. So if you happen to be gay, you know, that's not, that's out of the question in terms of how you you have to be a non-practicing gay. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah, Which you can have same-sex attraction in a sense, but you can't act on it. Is that kind yeah, of exactly. way? They so say? they're basically just like, just be celibate. Don't get to have yeah. a relationship. You don't get to fulfill that part of your or life. Or lie to yourself and your wife or your husband. Um, yeah, marry. Uh, you know, yeah. by by getting married when actually you're not. You know, you're not attracted to them, and that's mm-hmm. that itself leads to all sorts of difficulties. So yeah, it is damaging. Um, it's damaging because of the lies. It's damaging because of the policies. And um, the yeah. way they raise the way that I mean, something that dad's 
talked about a lot is the um, anxieties that it gives children. So like we were saying, you know how the, I was saying like, oh, a lot of the adults, I know obviously family members that seem quite dissonant about the end of the world and all of this like kind of, you know, needing to uh, proselytize and all of this sort of all the time. But, you know, as a child, you're being fed that constantly, like blood guilt, something we've talked about, where if you're not constantly trying to get someone to join, doing everything you can to get someone to join if, if armageddon comes and they die it's your fault i mean as mm. a child that's a heavy burden that you shouldn't be giving children at all which has got to be damaging but traumatizing yeah religious mm-hmm. trauma syndrome for sure 100%. that's why i was surprised those two jehovah's witnesses weren't trying to <laughs> proselytize me you know because even at so one point burned I, at that point <laughs> yeah i was i was expecting the whole conversation i was going to say because at one point when one guy went off to rush off to lead this kingdom hall meeting, the other guy suddenly realized that he had taken his car keys to, to the kingdom hall with him and he had no way to get home. So I ran him up to the kingdom hall and I was half expecting him to say, well, why don't you come in? And, you know, this is going to be really good, but he didn't. He just rushed in, got his keys and, and headed out, you know? So I was expecting it. I was all primed for yeah. the, you know, the big discussion. It's very strange. I don't know whether that's the, I mean, obviously the, you know, we're, we're in the UK, so British people tend to be a little bit shy and um, Mm. not necessarily wanting to have awkward situations. You know, we're, we're very emotionally stunted in that respect. Um, So maybe that's part of it. I don't know, but yeah, it is very strange. You would expect, and this is the argument I have. If you really believe that the end of the world is coming any day soon, you should be, really knocking down those doors i mean i was a pioneer so i i spent 90 hours a month uh doing the ministry when i was a, a young man but it didn't feel like i was you know rescuing people from a burning building it felt like i was just trying to get my time in by knocking on doors you know mm-hmm. it, there is a there is a strange drudgery um, to it. <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Well, I was going to ask, how would it fit with some of the more established cult models? Like, for example, I'm sure you use Hassan's bite model to describe it. I found some of those help, helpful models like Yanya Lalich's bounded choice model and some of the other ones that are out there. Would you compare it to some of those models? Like, for example, the bite model, how does it fit those sort of patterns? I mean, it absolutely does, you know, it's, yeah. um, and, and it, again, it's the spectrum. So it, it doesn't tick all of the boxes, but it ticks a lot. They, they control your behavior. They make you feel like you have to do certain things. You're very, very busy. You're, we had, uh, three nights a week meetings. Then we had the field ministry on Saturday, which is knocking on doors. Then you might go out in the ministry in the evening, but you're also encouraged to, to have a part-time job so you can knock on doors again. So there's lots of behavior control. You know, you're not supposed to watch certain things on television. You're not supposed to listen to certain types of music. Not about um, meant to even think about certain things because God knows. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like you're on for sure. Yeah. Thought you lots can have a thought of that. Absolutely, could be offended and yeah you could be absolutely yeah information control yes because again you're not allowed to uh you're very very discouraged about reading worldly wisdom you know that's Mm -hmm. just uh worldly wisdom is is a no-no so yeah you're, you're not supposed to be reading books about evolution or about physics or geology or you know why, why waste your time with that you know <laughs> yeah. read read uh read the watchtower and uh, the publications you know so yeah i think um without going through all the um you know all of it you've you've got um 
you've got it all there. I mean, and, and I met Celine's already mentioned about anxiety, you know, so that, and, and that emotionally, emotion control, but it does, it does control you emotionally. And I was, I, as a child, I was, I was anxious all the time. So yes, it does. And, and, you know, as far as Jan Jalalic's bounded choice, I mean, I love that the very, the very name for me tells you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, a great description. A way. Brilliant description because that one of the, the things that I guess critics of us anti-cultists um, say is that, you know, well, why don't people just leave? If it's that bad, why don't they leave? And, yeah. and of course the problem is, is you, your choices are very much bounded by the situation you find yourself in. So it's not rocket science. What these cults do is they create a situation that makes it very, very difficult for you to leave. Not impossible, but very, very, very difficult. And it's like we don't blame people that are like victims of, you know, abusive relationships. And we mm. don't say to them, like, why didn't you just leave? You know, mm. like it, it's, you know, just because it's like an organization rather than a person doesn't mean that we, we don't treat people with the same sort of respect mm. and understanding. It's not that simple for many people, is that you can't just leave, as you say, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Well, how about cult recovery? Is that the purpose of your podcast is to help people sort of rebuild their lives? Are you specifically aiming at Jehovah's Witnesses or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses with your podcast or does it cover other areas as well? I think we'd like to think that it covers other areas, wouldn't we, Celine? Um, yeah, it's we... more about people that have yeah, experienced controlling mm-hmm. um, yeah, high control groups or even, yeah, we've met, we've talked to people that have dealt with just high ships um so it's experiencing yeah having experienced being in a high control environment and leaving that and exploring yourself and the world for the first time potentially mm-hmm. or rediscovering it after a long time mm-hmm. yeah so i mean i'm not um so although i've studied psychology i'm not a counselor so i've not studied sort of clinical psychology so that the approach that i that i take is is about trying to understand how we make sense of our world how we make sense of our lives and and who we are and so when when you leave a a group like that especially if you've been born in you have all these questions about yourself and about what you think about all these subjects from politics to sexuality to you know science to anything really and you've have to make sense of all of that you've had this thing that's happened to you that you've been part of that is is part of you and you are part of it in a way. So as a 30 year old, which was how old I was when I, I sort of left, I, all my formative years were behind me. So part of my identity is shaped by my experiences, of course. And so you have this period where I, and I, I didn't know how to explain it at the time because I hadn't given it, I hadn't done all the studying. I hadn't thought about it. It took a long time, but it started to occur to me that identity was an issue. This was before I started studying psychology. I thought, my problem is I don't know who I am. Mm. I don't know who I am. You know, this Stephen that that um, I was before disappeared or at least faded away. And now there's this other person that's living his life. And I don't quite know who he is. I don't know what what to do with this situation. And, and what, what I've, what I think, we're trying to do is help people to just sort of go through that that process of of discovering what they think so we're we're not you know we're not here to to sort of counsel people and tell people what they should think it's saying 
hey, you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff out there. The world is full of mystery and questions. And um, part of this journey is to investigate this stuff. And what we try to do, I think, is to, in a little way, model how you might go about looking at some of those questions. Mm-hmm. So we do cover things that obviously are cult related. We interview ex-members, we interview experts and so on. But we also cover some subjects that are not really anything to do with cults. You know, we we did an episode about uh, virtual reality last time, you know, and that's and that's because that's a really interesting question. And, mm-hmm. you know, what should what should we think about that? You know, so let's let's have a look at it. And what's the science behind it? What's the sociology? What's the psychology? And so yeah, so I think that's for us, that's what we try to do. We're not there to tell people what they should think. Um, it's mm-hmm. really the question is everybody's asking that question. What should we exactly. do this? Especially for those of us, as you say, who are raised in it, indoctrinated yeah. or inculcated. That's the word in there from, <laughs> from day one. It is. I Absolutely. never had a personality or an identity. Like you say, um, when I came out of evangelicalism, I had to realize, I had to ask myself, who am I? Just like you're saying. Yeah. And realize that mm. I had a whole new identity basically to form all I knew was I was the pastor, the Bible college teacher, the blah, blah, blah. I spent all my life in and around churches. So that's the only sort of world I knew. So, yeah, I can definitely resonate with that. But one of the things, Clint, that I think um, so. So in my master's, um, I did a little bit of research that I'm I'm presenting at the the latest IECSA conference, mm-hmm. which I'm really looking forward to doing that. But one of the things that I found when I was talking to people for that, was that whilst I think I certainly felt that I'd, I'd lost my identity, but actually what, what we do is we, we somehow manage to incorporate our, the person we was, the person we were, into the person we are now. So there'll be things about you that you think, yeah, you know, I've always been a bit like that, to be honest. You know, I've mm-hmm. always been interested in that. And I, I wasn't able to pursue it because of before, but I was always interested in that. And that's the same with me. I think, you know, you're into music. Your music has always been there. For me, I was always interested in science and uh, and trying to understand how things work. And so on. That, and now I've been able to explore that more fully. Um, I've always been a bit of an anxious person. I'm anxious now, you know. So there's there's some threads of who we are. And I found that really useful because I think the the job of constructing a, a personality from scratch at the age of 30 is incredibly daunting. It's, mm-hmm. It feels really too difficult. And actually, I didn't need to do that because I, I could build on this, this other person. Although old Steve, Jehovah's Witness Stephen was a bit weird, had some strange beliefs you know did some odd things i think actually i'm still very much i have a lot in common with him you know mm-hmm. that's so true i i resonate with what you said because like you talk about you know when i was an evangelical i was into a lot of those things but it was always with the spiritual veneer so yes i learned to play drums specifically to be in christian rock bands and to play in worship bands in church but i picked that up i've obviously loved playing drums so I still play, but now it's in secular, you know, rock and yeah. blues bands, you know. So it's interesting how those threads still are there. But the, the actual skill of playing the drums is is no different whether or not you're playing on a stage in front of a church or in a pub or a club. And I think that's really important because that um, if you throw everything out, 
you literally are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, yeah. you are you oh, are hopefully. losing a lot of yourself, and and actually, you need to hang on to some of some of that self. And that's the that's the journey. That's the that's the thing that it takes us years. Um, maybe we never quite get there, but you know, everybody's sort of a work in progress. And I think we're we're all doing that. You know, which bits of me do I want to? Want to yeah, kind of hang on to which ones we jettison? Mm. That is a fascinating point. And on that note, we should probably end. It's been close to an hour. I really enjoyed talking to you and Celine again, meeting up again. And we're going to do mm. a uh, our mind shift Zoom call. We talked about that today in May. I'm really excited to have you two drop in and meet our group. So I'm, uh, that's mm. going to be amazing. So how can people find the show? How can they find you on social media? Yeah. So the uh, the podcast is called What Should I Think About question mark so it's a question we're not telling you what to think about but it's the question so what should i think about um and it's on all the the podcast apps apple Podcasts, spotify and so on um so yeah find us there social media wise i'm on twitter my handle is steve sheep s-t-e-e-v-i-l sheep and uh, there's also a what sitter handle as well which is is the one that you tend to look after more yeah which is like what and then s-i-t-a so it's like yeah. acronymed mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's yeah, not so as um, awful to type in <laughs> yeah yeah well thank you so much Stephen and selena really again enjoyed meeting up with you i'm, I'm sorry you. that we waited so long but i'm glad we finally got this done yeah. and i'm super excited like i say to have you to come back next month and we will do our zoom call Right. Awesome. Thank you very much Thanks. for having us again. Take care. Yes. We'll speak Thank to you, you soon. Too.